I'm gonna read this uh, from the book of Revelation chapter one. I'm just find my place here. I do have to admit that I full on need reading glasses now. I've, I've been resisting for so long. But even right now, this is embarrassing because I'm like, all right, where is it? Um, which means I'm going to pull it up on my phone here so I can actually read it. <laughs> That's so embarrassing. You can just do maybe some calisthenics while you're waiting here for me. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. All right. Do I love the Bible app? Yes, I do. Do I want to rate it now? No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. This I can read. This is better. All right. Revelation 1, 9. I, John, am your brother and your partner in suffering in God's kingdom and in the patient endurance to which Jesus calls us. I was exiled to the island of Patmos for preaching the word of God and for my testimony about Jesus. It was the Lord's day and I was worshiping in the spirit. Suddenly I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet blast. It said, write in a book everything you see and send it to the seven churches in the cities of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands, and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. Let's just pray. Jesus, we just ask as we read your word and, and dive into it today, we just invite your teaching, Holy Spirit. We invite your conviction and your correction. We invite uh, just your revelation here of everything that you have purposed for us this morning. I just humble myself before you and just recognize I, in and of myself, I'm completely insufficient to fully capture um, the depth of what you're saying here. And so I just, I need your help, Holy Spirit, as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. You know, um, earlier in the year, this year, probably in the spring sometime, I'm not sure exactly when, but earlier in the year, like you maybe, I, I just felt overwhelmed with everything going on. I felt overwhelmed with the intensity of all of the 
conversations. I felt overwhelmed with trying to navigate this as a, as a husband, as a father with my kids in school, uh, in our church life, open, closed, small groups, you know, limited everything. And I just felt totally overwhelmed. And I, and, and, and above all of that stuff, looking at just the life of the church in general and feeling like, um, like the church is in this kind of losing battle right now in the world and in our culture and in society. And I just felt totally overwhelmed. And, and I, was, I was pressing into all of these areas, but, but, but learning more about critical race theory or learning more about these things wasn't actually helping it wasn't actually bringing me relief. Hearing all of the commentary online and, and being up to date with everything going on in the news and all of that stuff was not helping. It just actually was adding to the weight that I was feeling. And, and then I started studying kind of in the book of Revelation. I was reading a, a commentary by a pastor named Daryl Johnson in Vancouver. And he, he's written a brilliant commentary on this book. And he makes this point about the passage we just read and it literally stopped me in my tracks and reoriented my whole frame of mind, my whole perspective in the heaviness of everything we've been walking through. Where do we find relief? And Daryl Johnson says, you know, John, as he's exiled on this island, he's disconnected from his community, he's disconnected from his family, he's disconnected from his friends, he's a, a political, um, he's on political exile on Patmos, he's helpless. And he knows that on the mainland, in the churches of, um, of Asia of the time, he knows in those churches they're facing persecution and they're facing hardship and trouble and they're facing false doctrine and heretical teaching. And it's like they're being attacked from the outside and they're crumbling from the inside. And he's stuck on this island and he can't do anything about it. The people that he loves most are crumbling under the weight and the pressure of everything happening externally and internally in their life. And it says that he was in the spirit on the Lord's day as he's worshiping, God begins to give him this vision, but the vision isn't how to sort of strategize to, to fix all of the problems around him. The vision isn't a strategy that's political. It's not social. It's not structural. The vision is the reality of Jesus Christ in the present. So God kind of unveils and pulls back, and that's what the word revelation means. The word comes from a Greek word, apocalypse. And an apocalypse is not, uh, it's not um, the doom and gloom stuff that, you know, Hollywood tells us is happening in the future. That's not what apocalypse means in the original language. Apocalypse in the original language means an unveiling, a pulling back of the curtain. It'd be like if we open these curtains, you could see Mountain Road out behind us in Fireman's Park. You can't see it right now. But it would be accurate to say if somebody went and opened those curtains, we'd have an apocalypse, a pulling back of the curtain. And in John's great moment of need as he's struggling, deeply caring for his friends, but not being able to do anything necessarily to fix the situation, what God gives him 
is a pulling back of the curtain and a revelation of Jesus as he is now in the spiritual realm. And I just kind of stopped when I was reading that section of his commentary. And the Holy Spirit just, just arrested me and he said, Andrew, what you need now more than anything is a revelation of me in the present moment. You don't need to fight all of these battles and fix all of these arguments. You don't need to be an expert on everything cultural, sociological, political, you know, all of these things. What you need is to see the reality of what I am right now in the present. You need to see what's actually more real than what you're seeing with your eyes. In a sense, what Jesus was doing with John was saying, John, things aren't what they seem. Things aren't what they seem. And I just feel so stirred in, in this moment in time, in this moment in history, in this giant sort of global upheaval that we're experiencing. What we need more than anything else is an apocalypse, a revelation of what's really real. We need, like John, the veil pulled back in our lives, in our families, in our work, with our finances, in our community, socially, in the world around us, politically, every sphere. We need the veil pulled back so that we can see things aren't what they seem to be. And this is what God gives John on that island. He gives John a picture, a vision of what's really real in spite of everything that he sees around him. I love that. We're gonna walk through that today. My prayer for us in this series and my prayer for us actually in the year to come is that no, like we're not just gonna talk about this theologically or academically or intellectually. The whole point was that John had a vision what my prayer for your life and for my life is that we would have an actual vision from God of what's really real in this moment. Wherever that pressure point of need is in your life, wherever faith is waning, wherever you're lacking courage or confidence, wherever you feel overwhelmed and outmatched, whatever it is that's kind of weighing on you and pressing in on you, what my prayer for you is and for me it's not that we would just sort of understand intellectually what John went through, but that you yourself would have a vision from God of the really real behind the present reality you see with your eyes. That's my prayer, that in your life and in your family, in your circumstances, whatever they are, and God knows what they are, that he would pull back the curtain and give you a legitimate vision of the real story that's taking place right now in the heavenly realms. We're gonna just walk through this. I really believe um, just this week as I was just processing this, writing some things down, I just felt God saying, "What, Andrew, what's captivating your vision for life right now? 
And I would ask the same for you. What's captivating your vision for life right now? What's driving your vision for life, your vision for family, your vision for what's possible right now, your vision for society and the city, your vision for church? What is driving that? I think the reality is, is more than ever, we need a captivating new vision of Jesus, a fresh vision, a fresh apocalypse, a fresh pulling back, a fresh revelation of Jesus. We need a new vision of Jesus that's worth living for. And we need a new vision of Jesus that's worth following and laying our lives down for. We need a new vision of Jesus that's worth dying for. I just, in my office, as I was making notes, I just felt like the Spirit say to me, Andrew, you'll never die for something you're not willing to live for first. So my question to you and, and to me is, what is your vision of Jesus right now? What is your vision of the really real reality in the spiritual realm? Do you have a vision of Jesus and his reality in your life that's worth living for? that's setting the trajectory of where you're going, that's driving your hope, that's driving your peace, that's driving your faith, that's driving your ability to persist under pressure, that's driving your life. What is your vision like of Jesus right now? And I think many of us, if, if you're like me, we need a new vision and a fresh vision of the really real reality of Jesus as he is in the present. What God gave John was a vision to see. This is so crucial in our understanding even of the book of Revelation. God didn't come with just words. He gave him a picture to see, not just words to hear. In fact, the hearing commands, like look and behold, actually drove John to turn around to see what was being talked about. Eugene Peterson says this, I do not read Revelation to get additional information about the life of faith in Christ. I've read it all before in law and prophet, in gospel and epistle. You know, let me just stop there really briefly. One of the keys to understanding this book and understanding kind of even what we're talking about today is that revelation primarily is not about things that are gonna happen in the future. There is some of that. But revelation was written to real people for a real time period, first century, Roman life, Asia Minor. Revelation primarily is actually stuff that's already all recorded in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's not about, you know, like watch the oil prices and when the price of gas hits this price, then we know the Antichrist is coming. And it's not about what nations are around us to the East right now and how we have to be watching geopolitical movements and what's happening. We've tried that. Every generation has tried that, right? Every generation has looked at Revelation like some kind of crystal ball. And we, we actually have to reframe things. What, what John is receiving from God are two things. One, a pulling back to reveal the spiritual reality behind the present. 
And he's also, in a lesser way, getting the spiritual reality of the future in light of the present. But the, the weight of revelation is, John, this is the spiritual reality of the present in light of your present. And so we're not, uh, if we finish the book of Revelation and we're worried about who the the, uh, the Antichrist is, and we're worried about all the geopolitical stuff around us and trying to, like, is Oprah the Antichrist or is, you know, like all of this kind of stuff, then we've missed the whole point of the book. We've gotten distracted. This book is about the really real reality of Jesus in light of our present. I'll go on. Everything in the Revelation can be found in previous in the previous 65 books of the Bible. The Revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. I read the Revelation not to get more information, but to revive my imagination. Daryl Johnson says this, imagery, has the power to go much deeper than mere words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotion into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotion into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting the emotion. Imagery slowly but surely works on the intellect and emotion, changing the way we see and hear and feel reality. And more than pro uh, propositional truth, imagery sustains the new vision of reality. One more quote about this idea from Eugene Boring. The Revelation's images are not mere illustrations of something that can be said more directly. A picture makes its own statement. It is its own text. It does not communicate what it has to say by being reduced to discursive propositional language. Just as in the case in visiting an art gallery, while commentary and explanation may help one to get the picture, language about the picture can never replace the message communicated in and through the picture itself. He goes on to say, it would be a violation of Revelation's mode of communication to attempt to summarize its message in a manner that would make the image itself unnecessary. And that's why I'm saying, like, we don't need to just intellectually know what happened to John. What you and I need in our life is an actual vision and picture of the really real Jesus in light of what we're walking through and facing together. We don't need just more intellectual doctrine about it or theology about it, as good as those things are. Revelation cannot be reduced to mere explanation, cognitive reality. It must be kept. It must be wrestled for to remain in this vivid image state because once God captures our imagination, when he's working on that visceral level of our life, the propositional becomes actual. We begin to walk. If he gives us a clear vision and picture for what is happening in heavenly places right now, that, that gives us a vision that we'd literally be willing to live for and walk out. If it's just merely proposition or doctrine, it's not gonna move us. And that's why God came to John in the way that he did. 
40 times in this book, John says, I saw. The primary, this is Daryl Johnson again, the primary exhortation of Revelation is not to trust and obey, but to listen and look. 19 times in the book, we're told to look. 19 times we meet the word low or behold. These are the imperative form of the verb to be. It is a command, look. Because John the pastor knows that if we can just see the full reality of the present, then we will have the courage to overcome the powers of the age and we will then follow Jesus with reckless abandon. If we could see literally what John saw, it would change how we view our life right now. It would literally upend all of the things that we think are obstacles and problems and things to work through and things to push aside and the weight and overwhelming nature of life. It would change that if we had a vision of Jesus as he is right now, a very real vision of Jesus as he is. John says uh, in 1 verse 12, that he saw. He said, when I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven golden lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the son of man. That term, someone like the son of man is very specific. John is using very specific language. And what John is doing is connecting Jesus with Daniel's prophetic vision back in Daniel chapter seven. In Daniel 7, this is what it says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So son of man, that term is a technical term. It actually, one scholar called it the most possible pretentious term you could use to reference Christ. It was the highest and most elevated term that John could use to talk about Jesus. And it refers to Jesus being the pre-existent heavenly being of the Old Testament. The pre-existent one in Daniel's vision in chapter 7 who comes in his kingdom authority and his kingdom cannot be overthrown. That's what John is saying. This is the one that I saw, the one who is Lord of lords and King of kings. The son of man is the one to whom all the kingdoms of the world are given. The son of man is the one to whom every knee will bow. The people of every age are going to give allegiance to the Son of Man. So right out of the gate, John is saying, this isn't just like, this isn't just like a, you know, uh, an angelic being. It's not just an ordinary guy. This is the one that the scriptures talk about that has authority over every kingdom and every ruler of every age and every time. He goes on to say the seven lampstands that this son of man is standing in the middle. And we learn later that the lampstands are a symbol for the seven churches that are on John's heart. And what's happening here? Jesus is showing John that he's standing in the middle of the thing that most deeply concerns him. 
Jesus is standing in the middle. I love it. Jesus is not floating above looking down. He's not standing beside looking across. He's not even underneath looking up. Jesus is in the middle of the thing that is most deeply weighing on John's heart and in his life. The the greatest area that John needs vision in and faith in and hope in and trust in. Jesus is saying, I'm standing right in the middle of it, John. I'm standing right in the middle. Daryl Johnson again says, which is why in each of the messages that Jesus then dictates to the seven churches, Jesus can say, I want you to hear this. Jesus can say, I know. I know what is happening in and among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggle. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know your emptiness. The risen and living Jesus lives and moves among his churches. He is moving among us even now. Jesus is not standing aloof, far off, looking on from a distance. He's in the middle of the things that are of deepest concern to John in his life. Another scholar says, he is no absentee who has withdrawn from the earth at his ascension to return only at his parousia, that's his second coming. Meanwhile, exercising his authority over the churches by remote control. That's not how Jesus is operating. He is present among the earthly congregations of his people. And whatever John has later to say about the coming of Christ must be interpreted in light of this salient fact. Jesus is not sitting there aloof up in heavenly places right now. He's walking in the midst of his people. And he can truly say about your life and my life, about this church and every other gathering of believers all over the earth, I know I know what you're walking through. I know what you're facing. The first thing John notices is the clothing of Jesus. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. The robe um, is the robe of a priest. So the image that Jesus is giving to John, presenting himself with is, that he is the great high priest. Jesus is the great mediator between God and mankind. In Latin, priest uh, is pontifex, and it's actually an engineering term that means bridge builder. That's what a priest actually means in Latin. And Jesus is saying, I am the great bridge of your life. I can actually... I can can build something in your life that crosses the chasm between you and God, that crosses this immeasurable distance. I am the great bridge builder of your life. And the gold sash across his chest. You know, what's interesting, as I was reading up about this, um, a number of people had mentioned, you know, especially in first century, if Jesus was described as having a belt around his waist, it would have kind of symbolized that he was preparing for work. But a sash around the chest means that the work is already accomplished, that everything necessary, everything necessary for life, everything necessary for freedom and victory and liberty has already been accomplished. 
The sash around his chest was a symbol that Jesus is now resting in the work he's already accomplished. He's not striving still. He's not trying to sort it all out. He's not sort of responding to the realities of our world in the real time. Everything that needs to happen has already happened. That robe is also a symbol, a symbol of a king's robe. So Jesus isn't just our high priest, our mediator, our bridge between us and God. He is the king of kings who's enthroned above all rulers and principalities and authorities and powers in the spiritual and natural realms. Jesus, as he comes right out of the gate with his clothing, is saying to John, look, I've accomplished everything already that you need in your life. I'm not responding and reacting to the circumstances around you. I have already overcome. I'm already King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I've already built a bridge between you and God that you can use. You know, an engineer building a bridge needs to know the terrain on either side of the bridge. And Jesus fits that bill perfectly. He knows what it's like to struggle and be fully human. And he knows what it is to be God. John continues on, and for the rest of John's description, he uses the word like, because it's hard to actually describe something that you have no real language for. And he said his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. John uses these words in the same way that Daniel did to describe the ancient of days in the text that we just read. John is linking again Jesus, not just as a divine being, but Jesus as having the same character and nature of God. Jesus is fully God. These words about Jesus' hair also declare the agelessness of Jesus. He was there before the beginning and he will be there after the end and he is here right now in the middle. Again, Daryl Johnson, you'll hear a lot of his quotes today. You already have. He has been around to see it all. He's speaking of Jesus. The rise and fall of ancient Assyria and Babylon and Persia, the rise and fall of Greece and Rome, the rise and fall of the world-dominating empires of Spain and Britain. He has been around and watched the ascent and collapse of ideologies, of apartheid, Marxism, Darwinism. Rulers have had their day Systems of thought have had their day, but he keeps on standing. I just love that thought. When we feel like everything uh, related to Jesus is under attack and under assault, he's seen it all before. I was meeting with a young guy who used to come here, who's just dismantling and deconstructing his whole faith. And I, I just sat across from the table and listened to him. And part of me is like, uh, you know, my first response is like, I, I'm, I'm afraid for you. But then I just felt like Jesus saying, Andrew, I've seen this all before. You don't have to be nervous or anxious or afraid because I'm not. Everyone who's tried to dismantle the idea of God, everyone who's tried to rip him out of society and politics and culture, everyone, he's seen it all before. And Jesus is not standing in heavenly places, worried and anxious and fretting about what's happening on the world around us today. He's seen it all before. 
He is the ancient of days. He's been there, done that, got the t-shirt, and he's wanting to lead you in peace and in victory and in faith because he's not worried about what's happening in your life or even on the world's scale today. It's also a description of his wisdom. Nothing catches Jesus off guard. He sees what we don't and knows what we don't and has the ability to lead us to the places we need to go. All of the wisdom you need to tackle what's in front of you in your life right now is found in Jesus. We need to see him and have a a fresh vision of his reality in our life. Jesus has literally gone to hell and back. Think about that. The worst of the worst of the worst. He's literally gone to hell and back and now holds the keys to death in the grave. There's nothing he has not walked through or experienced in life that he cannot lead you through. John continues, his eyes were like flames of fire. You know, the scriptures say that the eye is the window to the soul. Jesus is not only showing John that he's pure, but that he's purifying, illuminating, and penetrating. I think part of what Jesus is trying to show John in this vision is that he sees behind our masks and our veils. He sees behind the the image that we want people to see and perceive about us. He sees into the recesses and depths of our heart. He knows what's happening on the deepest level of our life. He sees what's really true about us. He sees all the junk that is destroying your life. And he has the ability to purify and burn away and refine all of that so that you and I can live up into the calling that he has for us. He is a refining fire. Malachi says this, but who will be able to endure it when he comes? Who will be able to stand and face him when he appears? For he will be like a blazing fire that refines metal or like a strong soap that bleaches clothes. He will sit like a refiner of silver, burning away the dross. He will purify the Levites, refining them like gold and silver so that they may once again offer an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. I heard one Christian uh, person, he's, he's passed away now, I was listening to him teach at Gordon Cronwell Seminary, just a podcast. And he was talking about heaven. And he said, you know, the question that we need to actually set before us, if we're unwilling to live, if we're unwilling to live for Jesus now, if we're not willing to actually surrender our life and lay it down now, if we're just living for you know ourselves and our idea of what flourishing and our vision for our own life is now, why would we wanna live under the rule of Jesus in heaven? And he said this one thing that completely arrested me, but it fits in line with what Malachi is talking about and what Paul talks about. He said, the fire of heaven is gonna be hotter than the fire of hell.
if we're not willing to surrender our lives now, why would we be want to why would we want to be willing to walk through an even greater furnace of refining to spend eternity with him? Our God is a refining and consuming fire. Heaven is not just the Philadelphia cheese commercial floating on clouds with angels. It, to walk in the presence of God means it's, it's, a, it's an, a demand for purity in our life. And if we're not willing to actually say, Jesus, rip out anything in my life that's impure, deal with me in a severe way now, I give you my life, I surrender it now, then why would we be willing to do it then? I think it's a good question to ponder. I think also in here, Jesus is saying, um, I'm looking at you. I'm not looking away. I'm not distracted. My eyes are on you. They're fixed on you. I think part of what Jesus is saying is, I see you. I see your life. I see your pain, I see your hopes, I see your fears. I see the mountains before you more clearly than you do and I see the valleys on the other side. I see you. I'm not looking away, I'm not, I don't have my head sort of, you know, staring at the ground in shame. My, my face isn't furrowed and angry, I see you. The question we need to ask is, are we willing to look back? Are we willing to look into the eyes of Jesus, to see him, to recognize him in our life? John goes on, his feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace. What's amazing about this, again, going back to Daniel, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar has in in the book of Daniel is this, I'll just read it, Daniel 2. This is Daniel explaining it back to Nebuchadnezzar. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from the mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them, to bits. The iron and clay can't support the weight or hold up under attack. But Jesus has feet that are burnished bronze, tested in the fire. What Jesus, I think, is communicating through this is that he's steady, he's been tested, he's rock solid. You can trust him. You can trust him in your life. His feet and his footing are secure and sure. With him, there's security. Where he walks, he overcomes. Unlike those feet that are mixed between clay and iron, which can be easily broken, the feet of Jesus are steady and secure. He wants to lead your life in security and peace. He's not wobbling on the edge like we do. His feet are planted and firm and secure. He's an anchor for your soul and your life today. 
that you can hold on to, that you can trust. You need a greater vision of the really real reality of Jesus in your life, and I do too. He continues, his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. I think part of what John is describing and trying to express is that when he speaks, it's with awe-inspiring power, but also his voice brings peace like the sound of waves crashing on the shore, right? When you're listening to the, you know, the, when you're getting a massage or at the chiropractor or whatever, and you, you've got the ocean waves kind of soundtrack going, right? It's just soothing and peaceful. That his words have great power, but that power isn't a destructive, chaotic power. It actually brings peace and rest to our lives. Are you hearing the words of Jesus over your life today? Are you? Or is your mind and your brain consumed with everything else that's coming in? Are you hearing his words? His words have weight and power. They break through, but they bring peace when they do. Not chaos or disruption or insecurity. He held seven stars in his right hand. John is later told these stars represent the seven angels of the seven churches. But there might be more, Daryl Johnson says, in the first century mind, the seven stars would clearly refer to the seven planets known at the time. People thought that all of life was under the sway and control of those planets. People anxiously consulted their astrology tables, Daryl Johnson says. The Roman emperors that were around in John's time as he was writing this, they understood this and asserted their kind of supposed cosmic rule by surrounding their thrones with stars and planets. Like, like, hey, we're the ones that are in control of the cosmos and you're just a pawn in this. You're actually sort of subjugated under this. Even in Greek religion, the goddess Hecate held the stars and called herself the beginning and the end. And Jesus holding these stars gives a counter vision, a counter reality to John. Like your life is not at the mercy of your horoscope or of the medium that you've been seeing or of the fortune teller or of the palm reader. Your life is not at the mercy of the alignment of the stars or whatever's happening in the heavenly places. I hold all of those things. So why are you looking to that other stuff? Why are you obsessing about knowing what's coming or or trying to read the tea leaves of your life? I hold it all. Again, Daryl Johnson says, the seven stars are in Jesus's right hand. Hecate does not have the stars. Caesar doesn't have the stars. Jesus has the stars. The planets do not control anyone. Jesus controls them. The stars do not run life. Jesus does. The Son of Man is Lord of the cosmos. The universe is held together by him. Is that the vision of Jesus that you have for your life? Or are you just kind of like a a reed in the wind, just swaying, just terrified? What's my horoscope today? What, What did this medium kind of say when she read my palms or whatever it is? That's stuff that we actually need to repent of. Jesus is the one who not only is feet of burnished bronze secure and trusted, he holds even the stars in his hands. 
He is the Lord of the heavens and the earth. He holds the whole world in his hands. John continues, the sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. The words that come from Jesus, they cut through all the noise and the nonsense of our lives. They're not limp or weak, they cut and divide. William Barclay, a theologian, notes that the word John used for sword here doesn't refer to a long fencing blade, but to a small, short, tongue-shaped sword used for close fighting. When Jesus speaks, he comes near to us. He's not distant and aloof, and his face was like the sun in all its brilliance. Jesus' face was brilliant and warm. The only thing John could compare it to was the most awesome of nature's wonders, especially in John's day. His face doesn't crush or condemn. It brings peace and grace. What do you think of when you think of the face of Jesus, even in your life right now? Do you imagine that his face is furrowed and upset and impatient and angry with you, that he's ashamed of you or that he's disappointed with you? That's not the face that, that John saw. He saw a face shining in its brilliance, lavishing warmth and peace and life on John. I love how he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. I think we need a little bit more of this posture in our church. Like, what's your posture toward the presence of God? Do you just stand there and kind of like, you know, Show me something, God. Or this worship team, ah, it's not singing songs I like today. I'm not feeling it today. I'm not feeling Pastor Andrew's preaching. You may even be literally thinking that right now. I'm almost done, by the way, if that's the case. But what's our posture like? Is it the kind of posture where all of your strength seems to be sapped away where you're humbled before the presence of God. John literally fell. He fell out at the presence of God. And yet so often we stand defiantly before his presence, demanding he do for us what we want. And yet when John encountered, this was the same Jesus he had laid his head on 60 years earlier in the upper room. The same Jesus who said that John is my friend. This same one he's very familiar with when Jesus shows up and gives him the really real reality, John falls to the ground. We need that kind of humility again in our life, that kind of posture and disposition. But then look at what it says, but he laid his right hand on me. The same hand that holds the stars now reaches and touches him. Jesus does not remain distant or removed from your life. The same hand that has almighty strength and power that moves the course of nations and time and history, the same hand that has all authority is the hand that touches John 
and renews his strength. We need a greater vision of the really real reality and disposition of Jesus in our life today. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and the grave. Literally, this is a command. Stop being afraid. Listen to what Jesus says. On the cross, he let all the powers of the devil and hell do their worst. He even let death overcome him on the cross. But it could not. Nothing can He hung on the cross and said, Satan, do your worst. Throw everything you have at me. Throw it all at me. And Satan and the powers of hell threw everything they could at Jesus Christ. But he was not overcome. We need a greater revelation and vision of the really real reality of Jesus in our life that he's not hanging on a cross helpless. He has risen and victory. He has feet that are sure. He has authority in his hands. He's got power in his voice. He's got the wisdom you need. He has everything you need for life in this season. What you and I need is to get our eyes off of what's happening around us and onto him in a greater way. Whatever that is that's pressing on your life, whatever you need for business, whatever... uh, practical vision you need, the strategies you need in your marriage and your family. Jesus is the one who has overcome all things. And his command to John is, look. Jesus has stolen now the chief weapon of death, which is fear. And his central message in this passage is I'm in the middle and because of me, you don't need to be afraid because I'm in the middle of everything in your life. You don't need to be afraid. I have overcome and because I have overcome, you can overcome. I know where to lead you and how to lead you in this season of your life. Let's stand together. Ben, if you would wanna come. So the revelation that we're going for in in this year that I'm calling you to is to get a vision of Jesus worth living for, a vision of Jesus worth following, a vision of Jesus that carries you through whatever it is you're walking through. The readers in John's day and time, the people he's writing to, they were bombarded with powerful images of the vision of life according to the Roman Empire. There were coliseums and statues, the, the, the Roman games. The, their lives were bombarded with this vision of life that they were be, being told, this is the vision of life you need, you need to have. But Jesus comes with a counter vision and says, I am the life that's worth living for. So John gets a vision for life that is heaven down. 
And in a day and time where you and I are bombarded, literally bombarded and assaulted with a a vision for life that's driven by our social media channels, that's driven by media, that's driven by advertising, that's driven by hypersexuality, that's driven by these values that undermine the kingdom culture of heaven. We're being bombarded with a vision for life. And Jesus says, I am the greater vision. I have a vision of your life and it's from heaven down, not from the earth up. So my question to you and to me today, is that the vision that we have, the vision that comes from heaven down? Are we just seeing all of the mess and the garbage and everything around us and losing heart and hope and faith? Jesus has a vision that he wants to give for your life. I would just want you to close your eyes as we close here. I want to just ask a question and there's these cards on the chair. You can write it on these cards if you want. It might be helpful. But I want, I want to just, let's invite the Holy Spirit and just give him a minute of our time right now. So just come Holy Spirit. We, our vision is cloudy and distracted and Maybe our vision is discouraged and hopeless and maybe we're just carrying the weight of like everything that's been going on in our life and we need faith and hope. So we just invite you, Holy Spirit, to just very specifically speak to us right now, where in our life, what situation, what circumstance, what what emotion, what, what internal thing or external thing, where do we need a revelation of Jesus as he is? Where do we need the counter vision of Jesus that is worth living for? I just wanna give him just a minute and I want you to be really specific with him and just under your breath to him, I just want to invite you to ask, Holy Spirit, where do I need a greater vision of Jesus in my life right now? greater vision of what Jesus can do to restore and heal and renew. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's as you look to the future right now. You're not sure where to go or what to do or what decisions to make. Father, we, I don't want to just talk about visions from you. 
I'm just asking for my friends, for me too. I, I want to actually have one. I'm just asking, Spirit of God, that you, you said in the last days you would pour out dreams and visions. We're in those days. You said young men and old men, young women and old women would have visions and dreams, would be awakened spiritually in their lives to the really real reality of Jesus as he is. And we need that in our families and in our churches and in our community right now. We need that in our workplaces. We need a vision worth living for and a vision worth following and a vision worth giving our life to again, Jesus. Father, I'm asking that you would actually give it. That you would remind us of the really real you in spite of everything we're walking through. Father, fill us with faith again. Fill us with hope again. Fill us with life again. Fill us with boldness and courage again. Fill us with strength again. Strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow. Jesus, we need a greater vision of you. And so I just ask in the very specific areas of our individual lives where we need a vision, where we're being suffocated and overwhelmed, that you would break through and give a, a vision of you in the middle of what most deeply concerns us. And Father, tomorrow we're going to fast and pray. And we're fasting and praying for Sarah and Connor and Georgia and others, but we're fasting and praying, God, for a greater breakthrough of your presence and your spirit and a vision of you in our life. We're not willing to just talk about it. We're going to fast and pray and press in, God, for something greater from you. Father, I pray as, as we drive out of here today, Father, that you would just fill those cars with hope and faith and life. Spirit of God, break through the noise in our lives. Break through the confusion and the discouragement and the frustration. Break through the apathy and break through the hardness and bitterness and break through the religious exterior, break through the the come and go motions of our spiritual life and break through and give us a greater revelation of you as you are right now. In Jesus' name.